Good morning, church. My name is Micah. I play here on the worship team as well as help out with the youth group. I will be doing the scripture reading today. We're in 1 Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you, Micah. Let's pray. Lord, we have such a profound and deep passage um, this morning. And Lord, we want to we wanna savor its truths and, and Lord, to be shaped by them. And so, uh, Lord, wherever we are kind of at in the journey of life, whether we're full-blown Christian, love Jesus, following him, and so on, or we're just checking things out, maybe feeling a sense of emptiness in life or wondering about what's the point of it all or whatever. Lord, pray that this passage of scripture this morning would be breathed into us by the Holy Spirit and illuminate our thinking as it relates to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So just who is this man who lived 2,000 years ago and grew up in a, in a rural part of the country of northern Israel, in a working class family. Um, he never married, he never wrote a book, he never traveled more than about 150 miles from his hometown. Uh, he was poor, he was killed. Uh, in, a, in a most humiliating, shameful way, crucified naked between two criminals. Who is this man? Well, as we said last week, he's greater than you think he is. We began unpacking these six verses uh, that are considered by church historians um, to have been a hymn in the early church. So this was a hymn prior to Paul adopting it or taking it for his letter to the Colossians. But he, he adopted, if it indeed was a hymn, he took that hymn and, and then made it a part of his letter to the Christians at Colossae, primarily because their understanding of Jesus Christ was muddled and confused, much like it is for many people today. Many people are confused about who Jesus actually is, and they vastly underestimate him. Last week, we pulled out four truths about Jesus from this hymn. The first one, we said, Jesus is the invisible God made visible to us. And that's verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. So God is invisible. He is spirit, Jesus said in John 4, 24. 
He's not physical. So Jesus is the invisible God made visible, made physical, so that we can see him and we can know God through him. Secondly, we said that Jesus is the preeminent human. That's the second part of verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. And so, contrary to the Arian heresy that's been around since the first few centuries of the church, and, and what Jehovah's Witnesses teach as well, which is an extension of the Arian heresy, firstborn does not speak of being created. Rather, it speaks of priority and rank within a family. And so the firstborn is the one who holds the highest rank in the family, gets the inheritance and all of that. Jesus is the firstborn among the human family. Thirdly, we said Jesus is the creator of all things. That's verse 16. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, which obviously excludes himself. He couldn't create himself, as some would argue. So Jesus is the uncreated creator of all things, visible and invisible. He created even those things you cannot see. There's nothing created that was not created by Jesus. And then fourthly, we said Jesus is the goal of all things. And that's the last part of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is the reason, he is the purpose and the goal of all things. From him, through him, and to him are all things, Paul would say in the doxology in Romans 11. Therefore, if your life isn't centered on Jesus Christ, you are missing, you are off from your purpose, which may explain the emptiness you may feel in your life right now. Well, we continue now, new territory, number five. Jesus, the hymn goes on, is the antecedent to all things. Verse 17, he is before all things. So antecedent, I know it's sort of a clunky word, but it just means before or prior to. So before there ever was a thing, there was Jesus. So the unanswerable question for science and for scientists is the question of origins. So, so what was there before there ever was anything? And so it, is there some antecedent to everything? And so somebody and many people, scientists will say, well, nothing. But then the question becomes, how can something come from nothing? That's impossible. So what preceded, what was before everything that is? And you know, 
Science goes through gymnastics and hoops. Well, there was this singularity. Well, where, what preceded the singularity? Well, there were aliens in a lab. Well, what preceded the aliens in a lab, right? You, you kick the can as far down. Multiverse, so many. Well, where, what was before that? And kick the can down the road. Eventually, you got to get to a place where there was nothing. What preceded the nothing? I want to take our time this morning and develop this thought with you from the Old Testament because I think it'll, it'll just sort of animate uh, better in our imaginations <clears throat> the reality of this. You remember the story of Moses, of course, when he was first called. God called him to Egypt. to go. He grew up in Egypt, right? But after Moses left Egypt, God called him back to set the Hebrew slaves free. And uh, Moses, if you remember God calling him, he had a hard time believing he was the right man for the job. I mean, he really thought, you, I think you got the wrong guy. And Moses didn't consider himself a good speaker. I mean, you're asking me to go to Egypt to Pharaoh and, you know, speak in front of all the leaders and all of that. I don't talk good. So Exodus 4.10, Moses says, oh, Lord, I'm not eloquent either in my past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. No, apparently Moses had a pretty selective memory because Philip in Acts recounts, Acts 7.22, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. <laughs> Moses says, I've never been good at words. Philip, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, dude was incredible speaker when he was in Egypt as a prince of Egypt. So apparently there was a time when he was brimming, Moses was brimming with self-confidence and eloquence, and he was a powerful speaker. Regardless, uh, Exodus 4.11 says, the Lord says to Moses, who made your mouth, Moses? <laughs> Okay, you say you can't speak it. Who, who made that mouth of yours? So growing up in Pharaoh's court, Moses was powerful physically, militarily, linguistically. He was a seriously tough dude. He, he killed an Egyptian soldier with his bare hands. And he thought he was called at that point to set the Hebrew slaves free. Moses felt some sort of a sense of calling on his life at that point, had been in Pharaoh's court the whole time, began to develop a heart for the Hebrew slaves, so much so that he saw an Egyptian uh, soldier beaten up on a Hebrew slave, went down there and just beat the tar out of the Egyptian soldier, killed him, buried him. And Moses thought that that was the moment he was going to rise to power and set the people free. Again in Acts, Philip, or Stephen rather, speaking, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. So, so you can see this in Moses' mind, right? Moses is the prince, you know, right under Pharaoh in Egypt. He's developing this massive heart for the slaves, and he's going to set them free. And he takes this step, and he beats an Egyptian soldier to death. And he goes, this is it. It's time to move. It's time to rise up. I'm here. I'm here. I'm going to set you free. And the Hebrew slave said, no, thanks. 
Not following you, dude. Here's the deal. Moses thought he was serving the Lord at that point to set the people free. But what he was doing, he was wanting to serve the Lord, but he was trying to do it in the energy of the flesh. A lot of people do this. I'm going to serve the Lord. And they think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring something to this ministry. I'm going to bring something. And, and they go out with bravado and confidence. And they fail. And so Moses began what would be a long, laid-back career as a shepherd on the backside of the Midian Desert. I'm going to give up this, you know, this leader of the people, this champion of the slaves, and I'm just going to tend to some sheep. But then after 40 years, quite a career in shepherding, something remarkable happened. Moses noticed there was a bush on fire. And it kept burning. And it kept burning. And it kept burning. And it wasn't being consumed. It was strange. It was weird. This was a normal. So, so Moses goes, I gotta, I gotta go see what the deal is. This is the strangest thing I've ever seen. And so he goes up to the bush as he draws closer. A voice comes out from the bush. And it says, Moses. Now, if you hear this in your head, you got to put a lot of reverb on it. Moses. <laughs> and Moses said, here am I. And the Lord said, take off your sandals, Moses. You're on holy ground now. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. And you know what Moses said? First words out of his mouth. Who am I? Who, who am I? What a difference 40 years make. 40 years previously, he stepped onto the scene with confidence and bravado. Have no fear, Hebrew slaves. Your brother Moses is here. He's, he's thinking he's going to be their champion, but instead he murders a man and did nothing to rally the Hebrews behind him. Now God tells Moses he's sending him to Pharaoh to set the Hebrew slaves free. And Moses says, uh, well, who am I? Those 40 years, which in the Bible, 40, is a number of trial, number of testing. It's associated with testing all the time. Israel wandered in the wilderness. How long? 40 years before they entered the promised land. Those 40 years in the desert turned all of that bravado and that self-confidence into a much-needed sense of inadequacy and insufficiency. God responded to Moses, who had just said, who am I? And God said, I will be with you. 
It's not about who you are, Moses. It's about who's with you. That's the story that's unfolding here, Moses. It's not about you. This is about me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you. So, it's good to have a sense, church, of our own limitations and our own inadequacy. Because the key is not who am I. It's who's with me. That's the key. So feeling inadequate and insufficient to the task, Moses asked God, who am I that I should do this this monumental thing of setting all these people free from the Pharaoh? And God responded not saying, well, well, you're Moses. You're the deliverer. Charlton Heston's going to play you in the movie. You're an amazing guy. No, God just said, I will be with you. Jesus said to the disciples that day, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teach the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And and I'm sure that those who were hearing that that day were going, whoa, go into all the world and teach all the, wow. Like, who are we? Such a monumental task. I'm sure they felt at least as inadequate to the task as what Moses did to the task he was being called to. Go into the world. Go out into this big giant Egypt and set the captives free. And Jesus said, not only to the disciples that day, but to us today. Go and do that. And I will be with you always. That's why this task won't overwhelm you. That's why you don't have to worry about your inadequacies and you can't speak good. You don't have enough verses under your belt. You, you know, all this stuff, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. You rest in the fact that he is with you. It's the key. It truly is. Moses does the most interesting thing. He asks God, then, what's your name? <laughs> At that point, Moses, he wants to know God's name. Now, now, it wasn't for the purpose of identification. Moses knew who he was talking to. I mean, Exodus 3, 6, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and so on. Moses knew he was talking to God. So it wasn't for the purpose of identification. So I want to suggest to you three quick reasons why Moses asked God for his name. The, the first one is for effective communications. So please understand, and most, most of you know this, but God's name is not God. God is a title, like president or chairman or mayor or sheriff or pastor or whatever. It's a title. And so it's one thing to know a person's title. It's an entirely different thing to know their personal name. And so when you know someone's name, you can, their personal name, you can communicate with them personally and effectively. After church, when you're in the, in the foyer and you're, uh, you know, milling about out there and, and there's a crowd and all of that, if someone tried to get your attention and said, dude, bro, at that point, all the dudes and the bros are going to be. 
But if someone in the crowded foyer says, hey, James, hey, Roger, hey, Sue, if that's your name, you're going to go. To know a person's name makes for effective communication. Moses is saying essentially, God, if I'm going to go and lead these three million or so people to freedom, I want to be able to communicate with you directly and effectively. But secondly, and, and I think more importantly, he wanted, Moses wanted a personal revelation from God about who God is. That's what he's really longing for. And the story as it unfolds would bear that out. In ancient times, unlike today, a person's name was, was typically directly linked to something about their nature and their personality. Now, there's debate about how a parent could name their child something, you know, when they're an infant and know something about them. Uh, we won't get into that. But that is what they did. They named their children according to certain characteristics and so on. And I think sometimes the parents were speaking prophetically as they named their children. You, now, you have to wonder what was going on with Nabal's mom, though. Nabal, it means fool. And uh, moms were typically the ones who would name their babies in that day. And what was that mom thinking? Maybe she was just mad at the difficulty of the birth or something. Fool. I don't know. <laughs> Nabal turned out, though, he turned out to become an arrogant, rich guy who disrespected David by refusing to help him in a time of need. And David was so mad he was going to kill him. And then Nabal's wife, Abigail, you all recall the story, Abigail comes with, with food and gifts and so on to David and his men and said, actually, I'm going to read this to you because this is really good. First Samuel 25, 17, Abigail says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. Apparently, she's been storing some pent-up anger in her marriage, and it's going to vent a little bit. Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. David, I get it. My husband is an idiot. He's a fool. And I, I just say amen to all of that. So Abigail gets a couple verbal shots in at her husband, well-deserved. But in ancient times, a person's name was typically linked to something about their character and nature. Now, we do that. I think a, a better connection is nicknames, right? We've all had nicknames or people in school, you know, and in my school, Moose Lake High School, we had Malty, you know, Scott Holberg was Malty because he loved ice cream, especially Malty's. To this day, we call him Malty. Uh, Spoo, <laughs> Spoo in second grade, he threw up right on his desk in class and forever he was known as Spoo. I had a guy in my class we called Booger. Don't have to go into why that <laughs> is. But you get the idea. Connected to something about the person. That's what Moses is asking. God, what's your name? And in so doing, he's looking for a revelation into his character, into who he is and what he's like. And, and this is amazing. God answers him. Here it is. Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So Moses... Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you.
There it is, the name of God, the personal name of God. This is known as the tetragrammaton. Tetra means four, grammaton means word or language. <clears throat> so when you transliterate the Hebrew uh, letters from Hebrew to English, they become Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. They were later rendered into the Latin alphabet as J-H-V-H. The Masoretes, who were Jewish scribes from the 6th to the 10th century, they uh, reproduced original, the original Hebrew texts of the Bible, and they added vowels to the Hebrew, or from the Hebrew word Adonai, to the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. And in so doing, it became Yahweh, the Latin Jehovah. But the truth is, the reality is, we, we don't know for sure how you pronounce the personal name of God. Moses knew, because he heard it from God. It comes across in our English Bibles as I am. And we know what it means. We may not know what it sounds like, but we know what it means. It means that God is eternal. I am that I am. Not primarily that he's everlasting, but that he is independent of time and creation altogether. So God can't be measured with years or by revolutions of the earth around the sun. Though he works and he moves within creation, he is completely separate from creation. So, so there's no past or future tense with God. He doesn't change. He was the same to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as he is to us today. We sang that song. You answered prayers back then. You answer prayers today. You killed Goliath back then. You kill our Goliaths today. And so on. All that he will be to future generations, he is now. He has nothing to learn, nothing to acquire, nothing to become. He is I am. He alone is reality. The source of all being. Psalm 102 verse 25 says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. God's gonna change out the universe like an old pair of jeans. Time is a created thing, therefore God is outside of it and yet he acts within it. Now, I don't want to pass over this without just making an application for us, because I think a lot of us miss this, and, and a lot, and this impacts our prayer life, gang. This, if we understood this better, the present, not the past, not the future, is where time connects with eternity. Time connects with eternity in the present, not the past, not the future. 
So God is in the now. He is in the eternal now. Not back then, not in the gonna be. And so he wants to meet with us now, in the present moment. So what's facing you now? Not then, now. What are you worried about? What are you struggling with? He wants to meet with you now. Now is when God will give peace to you. Now is when God will dispense grace for your situation. Now is when God will move upon you. The Lord isn't the I was or the I will be. He's the I am. The ever existing one, the uncreated source of all created things. Well, flash forward. It's John chapter 8. And Jesus is having this back and forth with some religious Jews who are getting kind of upset with Jesus. And, and Jesus said, you know, hey, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And for, that just kind of set them off. Like, hey, we've never been slaves ever. Egypt, anybody? <laughs> Babylon, anybody? And Jesus says something so mind-boggling to these religious Jews. John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So those Jews, they said, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Like, what kind of a nut are you anyway? You're claiming that, that you've been with Abraham, that you've hung out with Abraham. And Jesus said, John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That phrase... They knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus was claiming to be the God in the burning bush. He was claiming to be the ever existing God, the God who is the antecedent to all that there is, who is before all things. How do we know that that's the way they took it? Well, the next verse says they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself. They, they thought, this is such an egregious blasphemy. Let's kill him now. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus is the ever existing one who dwells outside of time. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He has never not existed. He's the antecedent of all things. He's greater than you think. I was listening to a documentary this week. It was on the radio. And uh, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, the, the threat of nuclear war was kind of 
looming. Kind of is again today, isn't it? But then it was sort of a part of, of, of the culture at that point. Um, you know, we had nuclear drills at our school. You know, there's certain siren sound goes off and everybody, all the kids know, get under your desk, right? Because that'll save you. <laughs> and the president, of course, had the codes to nuclear weapons. And he had, and this is still true today, there's an assistant that goes with the president wherever he goes. This assistant has a black briefcase that's known as the football. And inside of this black briefcase, there are the, the codes and instructions for various different modes of a nu nuclear attack. And, and so, at this time in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there's a lot of talk and worry about one person, the president, having all this power to be able to press in a few buttons and kill millions of people by making a decision and, and press, pressing those buttons. So people, you know, they tried to think there, there needs to be some sort of a mechanism because what if he's just having a bad day? You know what I mean? President's having a bad day. Wife was mad at him. They had an argument or whatever. That's it, China. Boom, you know. So one of the thinkers back then was Harvard Law Professor Roger Fisher. And uh, he published a, a thought experiment in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And he asked the question, what if the codes to launch nuclear war and the weapons of war were kept inside the chest cavity of a volunteer. So what if you took the nuclear codes and you put them on a capsule and you implanted them somewhere near the heart? And so he, he would go on in his article to say, this young man, the assistant to the president, he has a black attache case which contains the codes that are needed to fire off nuclear weapons. And my suggestion is simple, put that needed code number in a little capsule, implant that capsule next to the heart of a volunteer. The volunteer will carry with him a big heavy er, uh, butcher knife as he accompanies the president. If ever the president wanted to fire the nuclear weapons, the only way he could do so would be for him first with his own hands, take the butcher knife and kill one human being. To get to the codes, you've got to plunge that knife into your assistant to get the capsule out. So the president would have to say to his assistant, you know, George, James, whatever, I'm sorry, <clears throat> but ten, tens of millions of people are going to die. And he would then have to look at someone realize what death is, what, what an innocent death looks like, because in a nuclear war, perhaps millions of innocents would die. He would have to look at the blood on the White House carpet, and it would bring reality home. So Roger Fisher presented this to his friends in the Pentagon, and they said, my God, Roger, that's terrible. 
having to kill someone would distort the president's, the president's judgment. He might never push the button. That's exactly the point. You have to face the reality of the very thing that you're wanting to do to millions of people. Listen, embedded in the heart of Jesus Christ was not nuclear codes for destruction and death, but rather life and salvation. In order to access this life and salvation in the heart of Jesus, it wouldn't be a knife plunged into his chest. It rather would be nails driven into his hands and to his feet, a spear thrust into his side, the ever-existing one, the antecedent to all that there is, the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made, would die a humiliating, shameful death on a cross in order to actuate that life and salvation for humanity. Don't let his shameful death fool you. Let it become one of the jewels of his greatness. He's greater than you think. He really is. Let's pray. Lord, we are confronted by your greatness. And so if, if we are to believe the record of scripture, then you are greater than we can even imagine. And that we are not only your idea, we didn't create ourselves, you created us. We are your idea, but we also exist for you. And we find our purpose in you. And how easy it is for us to think that, well, my purpose is my, my business, or it's my family, or it's seeing the Eagles win today, <laughs> or this pursuit, that hobby that passion. And while all those things might be fine and, and good things, they don't rise to the level of purpose. Only you, Lord. Only you deserve that spot. Being our first love, our greatest love, greatest pursuit. So Lord, before we come to the table this morning, perhaps, uh, perhaps there just needs to be a little adjusting of our lives. Maybe, maybe we found ourselves obsessing over things that aren't you, worried about stuff, or just so immersed in something that it dominates our thoughts, it consumes our thoughts and doesn't leave time for the greatest meditations and the greatest communion, the greatest relationship. And that's with you. So, Lord, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just simply move in the hearts of your people right now as we consider that the ever-existing God
Jesus, invisible God made visible to us, the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made, the one who existed before there ever was anything, was willing to enter into space-time live on the planet that he created, grow up in obscurity in a small town in a rural area, in a working class family, be a carpenter, work with his hands, and then at a certain point begin to announce Announce the kingdom. And that you can be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun, and to announce the reality of who he is to the world. And it would be the very thing that would get him nailed to a cross. But Lord, we knew that, we know that, the greater story is that this was the plan all along. That God would shed his own blood to purchase a bride. So Lord, if, if there are things that need adjustment in us this morning, would you, would you speak to us right now? Christians, just, just talk to God right now about your life. If there's something that needs adjustment, do it. As people are praying, you may, you may not consider yourself a Christian, uh, meaning that you've never come to the place where you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus. You've never repented. That's one of those Bible words that can sometimes sound more difficult or complex than what it is. It just means to turn away from your sin or your present mode of life and turn to Jesus. And so if you have not done that, turned away from your sin and turned to Jesus and confessed him as your savior and Lord, I wanna give you an opportunity right now. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Christians are praying, they're talking to God about their own lives, but you are going, I don't think I'm a Christian yet. God bless you, sir, right down here. If that's you, raise up your hand. Anybody else? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you in a simple prayer. And the Lord is going to answer that prayer this morning. And that's what he does. Anybody else? All right. If you raised your hand, I want you to say this prayer. Repeat this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now just as I am. And I ask you to come into my life and wash away all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. 
And so I give you my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. That was good. Thank you. Wow. That is so good. Bless you, Lord. Um, I just want to encourage you at this time period to go ahead and, and get up and go to the, there's different um, tables that have both the cup and the unleavened bread. Um, it's actually gluten-free unleavened bread. Um, but can I, can I just talk while everybody's getting up and going to those places to get your communion? I want to I remind us of something, you know, that, that God created six, he did all of his creation in six days. But then on that seventh day, he rested. And we refer to that rest day as our Sabbath. But you see, the problem is, is that, that man want to make that a legalistic day. A day that says, if you don't keep the Sabbath the way that they did, then you're in sin and you're not worthy to take what would come later, which is what we acknowledge what Jesus provided for us because he provided our Sabbath rest for us. See, it's a new day. It's not Saturday. It's Sunday for us it, because it's the new day. It's the day that the Lord raised from the dead, that he conquered both sin on that cross for us and its cost, which was the life of God. But then he rose from the grave. He conquered death on our behalf. And so he is our Sabbath rest. And, and so might I encourage you to, to look at communion not as, man, I don't feel worthy today to take that communion because of whatever. No, this acknowledges our dependence, our continual dependence upon him. Because without him, there is no salvation. But there is him. He did go to the cross to pay the sentence that was ours. That's what he did. He took the bread and he gave thanks. Knowing that the ugliness of sin is brutal. But because of love, love for each one of you. He has your name written in his book of life. He says, I love them. He says, I'll take their blow. I'll take the punishment of their sin. And so let's give thanks. Lord, we give you thanks that you took a judgment that we can't bear. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us to save us from a wrath to come and yes Lord it says to sanctify us by your blood and so we want to say thank you for saving us by your love on that cross thank you Jesus in your name we pray amen won't you take the bread and of course Jesus knowing that his life was going to be given 
gave thanks. There's a new covenant. It's no longer by an innocent animal to cover man's sin. No, it's by the blood of God who takes it away. The old has passed away. Behold the new. We have reason to rejoice, my sweet, sweet brothers and sisters. We have reason to rejoice because we've confessed our sins and it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't listen to the enemy when he lies to you. And he tells you, oh, but God would not forgive you for that. That is a lie. He has cleansed us. We are free in him. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that it was your blood that cleanses us and gives us new life. You rose from that dead, oh God. And so our hope is in eternal life for you. You have begun that transformation in us. He who began a good work will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we look forward to that day. And until we do, Lord, we give you thanks. We remember and we give you thanks because you are to be glorified. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Won't you drink?